Welcome back to Body Talk with Bex. This is the second episode with Anya Christofferson for the second half of our conversation about growing up with Factoral and everything that she's accomplished since then because it has really impacted her career path. And let's just jump right on in. you want to work chronologically and just kind of go a little bit more into depth I mean all of that obviously wasn't as neat as like one year you dealt with this and one year you dealt with that I'm sure it was just wherever yeah (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine the schedule I'm, I'm not sure if Savannah told you, but I like her and I have a good conversation about these fires, you know, that it's a fire that comes up. You have to put the fire out. So for me, I feel like a firefighter with my medical stuff that I'm constantly putting out fires. So like I said, the first five years of my life were very challenging. So I was in and out of hospital constantly. I had my pelvic reconstruction, but then I had, you know, constipation quite constantly. Mm. And it was because my larger colon, at least now, because I've had the studies done, it doesn't move things through quickly at all. You know, I had a five-day motility study and it showed that I think 85% of things were still in my colon five days later, which is quite a lot. It's not supposed to be like that. So I had all this constipation as a child, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but for me, I was hospitalized over and over and over with it. I had, you know, NG tubes, like from my nose down to my stomach, filling me with like laxatives. And I would be able to have NG for five days of laxatives without anything happening in the hospital. And it was very, very difficult and obviously would lead to nausea. And there were times as a child where I'd be vomiting my own feces because I would be so blocked up that it would be coming out the top, which is disgusting and horrible. In addition to all of that, I had a lot of urinary tract infections because there was just, you know, contaminants all the time. And um, that then obviously posed a risk to my single kidney. But at the same time as all of that was going on, because I had that tracheobronchomalacia and I wasn't able to clear my lungs properly and breathe very easily, I would have pneumonia quite often. And so I'd be in and out of hospital with pneumonia that was quite severe. And there was one time when I was two and a half that I actually flatlined, like my heart stopped because I couldn't get any air in and I was so sick with that pneumonia. So it was quite constant and there was nothing really that could fix it or that could remedy it. It was just like, these are the wars, these first five years, we just need to survive through them. Um, And I did. And throughout it all, I was a happy, you know, joyful kid. Like I was doing the same as everybody else was doing, except like, you know, had bowel incontinence and (laughs) so she's there, but I also had, you know, rectal enemas to try and clear out my bowel and all of that. But I thought that everybody else had bacterial. I thought everybody else did bowel flushes. I didn't feel ashamed. I felt completely normal. I thought everyone else was weird because they didn't do the same things as me. So yeah, it was those first five years that were very difficult. But then I, like I said to you, I had those years where I was okay. 
And in those years, I just had, you know, the occasional bout of pneumonia or normal things like breaking your arm as a child or getting your tonsils out. But as I got older, it was really around 15 or 16 that it was like every single body system had something wrong with it. And it wasn't like it could be pinned down, like, you know, you've got ovarian cysts, but that doesn't explain all the other issues. You've got, but this doesn't explain all the other issues. And they found that somehow in my pelvic reconstruction, even though they made three separate holes, my urethra had grown to become inside my vaginal opening. And I'd tell doctors about this and they'd just think that I wasn't smart and didn't understand that, you know, the whole area isn't your vagina, it's just the hole. But I'd, you know, tell them, and I don't know how that happened, but that obviously has led to so many more UTIs and has been, you know, a little bit challenging to manage because it's difficult not to have UTIs, I think, when you're sexually active and your urethra is inside your vagina. Like, it's not how things are supposed to work. So, when yeah, when I was 15, I had that going on, and then I had, you know, a really low immune system, and I got to a stage where I struggled to even sit up or get up out of bed. It was like a chronic fatigue thing that never was diagnosed as chronic fatigue, but they picked up on like three different viruses I had. One was a mosquito borne virus, and, you know, all these different things were happening in my body. Like the constipation was back, the, you know, ovarian cysts were there, my heart was having its issues. So it was like there were just fires everywhere. And I had to work, work through them and had, you know, big pelvic infections and then lots of subsequent surgeries in my late teens and now early twenties. Wow. Wow. All of that just, I can't imagine like being in your shoes for a lot of that. Yeah. I think that like when I was younger, I was, you know, very resilient and I don't like the word resilient because I don't think it should be used in these settings I don't think we should be praised to keep getting back up every time we fall down without you know support just with the strength of your mind like as much as I promote that and think it's great I think we need to really nurture people and help them to get back up again and you don't have to be strong all the time because I think through a lot of it I was strong you know it wasn't typical for other people to be going through these things and to talk about some things that were just so casual like throwaway remarks to me like oh you know I could die because I have all these antibiotic allergies and they can't treat me with new antibiotics that'd be like oh whatever like they'll work it out but to other people it's really confronting Mm -hmm. and it's really confronting I think having someone that's unwell in your life so I started to realize that and then you know you put up the wall but it's okay going to be fine and you keep all those worries to yourself yeah yeah I mean I'm just drawing a blank right now of how to process (laughs) no worries (laughs) wow so were you going to schools throughout all of this or were you homeschooling at all so I was going to school up until halfway through grade 11, when I was just so unwell that I had to leave high school and I went an alternative pathway, which was like, a we call them universities here. I think it's college there, but they have like a college to get into the university, which was like okay. equivalent to, you know, high school or something else. So I went there when I was like 16 and did my high school equivalent so I could get into university. But 
yeah, throughout it, like I was still in school, I would have, you know, time off if I was unwell, but I was really just trying to portray that whole, like I'm normal and this is great. Like I'm exactly the same as everybody else. I don't have to put something up my bum tonight to empty my belt. Like everything's okay. (laughs) But yeah, it, yeah, I was with, you know, everyone else that didn't really have that many medical issues that they spoke about either. So did you have like close friends that you could talk to about things? Yeah, I did. I like told all of my close friends about, you know, the things that were happening and I felt like I was really articulate in that. And I think maybe I was to an extent at times and in glimpses, but I realized that when my book came out in 2018 and so many people were able to read it and especially my close friends that they actually said to me that they had no idea what was going on none of the things that was happening through high school they knew about. They didn't know about all the stuff when I was a child. You know, I probably put on that strong front and just gave, you know, bare minimum details, which wasn't actually my intention. But yeah, they, I don't think they really understood everything that was going on because I didn't really articulate the full extent of things. And I think tried to brush off a lot. And I didn't really identify as having a disability when I was, you know, in those healthy years because things were fine. You know, if you think of a disability as something that restricts your activities or (laughs) things like that, I didn't have too much of that. Like I had, you know, still couldn't really swallow properly, still couldn't really breathe properly, but it, it was okay for me. It was normal. But as I got older and saw how much my activities could be restricted by my health, my medical appointments, you know, all these fluctuations, that's when I think it's changed. And I started to articulate myself in a different way. I really like that you said that, that you didn't view yourself as having a disability. Cause I definitely identify with that. And I, I know most of my growing up, I viewed myself as well as not having a disability. I, you know, because I'm not in a wheelchair, you know, or something like that, where it's visible and affects my ability to walk around. I always thought I was totally normal. Exactly. And it took me a while. Yeah. To really realize like, no, this is a disability. I pay attention to more medical things and health related things than a lot of my friends do because I have to, you have to stay on top of it. Absolutely. And I think the fact that the image of disability, which is changing now, I feel, but has always been associated with, you know, being in a wheelchair and that's Mm -hmm. what's on disabled toilets and things like that. Mm -hmm. Even though it's important, it's been so invalidating. I feel to people like you and me and so many others that live with invisible disabilities or other disabilities that don't require them to be in a wheelchair because I never asked for the supports or adaptions that I needed because I didn't feel like I had a disability or like I deserved them. I didn't understand equity and that, you know, if you give me a bit more support, I'm actually on an equal level. I just always thought about equality. You know, you give them an apple, you give me an apple, you know, like that's fine. But I didn't realize that things were actually different for me. And I did, well, I probably have lived with a disability all my life and I feel like I was really, you know, had that disability when I was young and then picked it up again when I was 15, but it, it did go the whole way through. And I think changing that identification, it's helped me access a community that I've never thought that I was part of. And I'm not sure if you can relate having, you know, a more recognition as well, that 
it's hard to find people that have the same condition as you and to find that community. And when you realize that there's a whole chronically ill and disabled community out there that you're welcome in, I think that's really special. And it, it, yeah, it changed a lot for me. And not that I always feel like I belong in it though. You know, I think there's like that imposter syndrome of, oh, but you know, other people have it worse or yeah. Oh yeah. I get that. I feel that all the time. Yeah. I, yeah, I had never met anyone else with bladder atrophy until last week. I spoke, I had an interview with the girl for the first time who has bladder atrophy as well. And I had never talked to any other BE patient, never compared experiences, never had that community. And it, it felt like coming home, honestly, talking to her and sharing stories and yeah, it's just it, such it a does. different experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's really strange. And like, it's like you've found your family in a way, like in a in a strange way. I, that's how I felt anyway, that there are these people that can be complete strangers to me. And then, you know, I talk to them about my experiences and they've experienced the same thing. And we understand each other fully just because of that. And I think that's so, so special. And it's so sad that so many of us are separated at birth, you know, that as children, we're not always put together, you know, or introduced to other people or able to start comparing experiences from a, a young age and helping each other work things out and navigate through the system. I think that there's something really special about finding other people that have been through similar things to you. Yeah, I think that's harder to do when it is such a rare condition that you're born with to find people at an earlier age, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of mentioned like when you were younger, younger, you were never really like embarrassed by anything. Do you remember how you felt as a kid about yourself? I mean, we kind of talked about it just now that you didn't view yourself as disabled, but um, is there anything else like on top of that? Yeah. So as a child, like I briefly mentioned, I thought everybody had bachelor. I thought everybody spent a lot of time in the hospital because when I was a kid, obviously I was in a kid's hospital with other kids that, you know, had very different conditions to me, but they were kids too. Like they were like kids like at school. So I was really proud actually of, of my disability when I realized that I was different because I'd run around at school and ask everybody about how their washouts are, which are my, you know, rectal enemas or colonic irrigation. And they didn't know what I was talking about. So I finally realized, okay, like that's not something that people are familiar with. So I talked to my parents. They told me I was the only one at school that does this, that they know of. And then instead of being like, oh no, I want to be shy about it. This was when, you know, I was five or six. I thought, oh my goodness, I can use this for show and tell. Um, so I made a poster and we had like my, you know, those sort of diagrams where you can see everyone's internal organs and they're all just sketched. So we had like a normal or typical person one. And then we had me and like, we used white out to white out all the things that I didn't have, like the other kidney or the like breaks and different things. So did like a spot, the difference. We had photos of me with my like colostomy. And then, you know, we said, if any kids want to know about like my scars or anything, just ask. And so they all asked because scars were cool when you're five. And so, you know, I'd be lifting up my shirt and showing everyone all my scars and I just loved it. Like I thought it was great. And so I was at the same school when 
I was in grade one and two where all of the show and tell thing happened. And then I went to a different school for only grade three. And there I just didn't really like, it's not that I was ashamed or anything, but I just kind of wanted to be a normal kid because I thought I was a normal kid still, even though I sort of knew there was a difference, I was still a normal kid. So didn't speak about it much. And then I think as I went into primary school and high school, like, or later primary school, I was more conscious of you know, trying to be the same as everybody else or trying to, you know, do the same things even when I may not have capacity and it may be a lot more difficult for me. So I didn't, I wasn't ashamed, but I didn't like wear it with the same pride. I didn't lift my shirt off anymore at school. I kept kept myself closed and yeah. I love that you did a show and tell about that. And it wasn't just like bringing in the tools that you use. It was like, the diagram and showing the differences. And I really, really love that because that's such a teachable moment to so many people. Because you know, those kids also went home to their parents and probably told them about that. And I mean, that's, I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah, I think I provided a lot of teachable moments. Like when I went to that last primary school that I was telling you about from grades four to seven, you know, I did tell my friends, like I've got this condition. I didn't really know how to say it. Like all I knew was that the main thing that would annoy me was, you know, being incontinent and having to get, have rectal enemas every day. So I just thought that was my main issue, even though I knew I had Vactryl. So if I wanted to tell someone, you know, what my health problem was, I'd say I was born without a bum. That's all I'd say. And then there was this rumor going around school that my bottom was made out of plastic because if I was born without one, then how come I have one now? Must be plastic because that's what kids think or like plastic surgery or something. I don't know. So I had like this mother call my mother very, very concerned and was like, I've heard this awful rumor going around that isn't true and blah, blah, blah. And I had people coming up to me at school asking if they could like touch my bottom because they thought it would be like hard plastic. Um, so I was a bit weird for, <laughs> for a little bit there, but we eventually got it to a teachable moment of no, like it's not made of plastic, still made of flesh. <laughs> like, yeah, preferred so. if you didn't touch it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. At least that's kind of funny. Like in hindsight. Like. <laughs> I, I still found it funny at the time because I was just so shocked. I was like, how, how did you go? get to that how did you get to that point from what I said (laughs) yeah that's how (laughs) yeah so you went to school you had friends were you able to partake in hobbies or was all of your time outside of school spent at the hospital no I did have hobbies I think I'm just not good at like defining what my hobbies are but I think at that age I did debating in school which I really enjoyed I did choir because one of my friends did it, but I could not sing to save my life. So did that as a hobby. <laughs> could your esophagus handle the singing? Yeah, thankfully it was okay. But like I was put in the alto because I've got a deeper voice. So I literally just had to go like, oh, like the entire time, like make a low, long noise. And that was it. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't do much, but I did that. I did some like volunteering at aged care homes, like things like that, but I was very academic focused. And then like, I started going to gym when I was like 15 to try and build up my strength. So yeah, I was doing all of that 
and caring for my father that had the stroke when I was 11 years old. So all of my weekends were up on the Sunshine Coast, whereas I went to school in Brisbane. So the weekends weren't really used for kind of like social things or hobbies. It was more about being like with my family and making sure that everything's okay. Gotcha. Okay. When you started working out, were you working towards building muscle in a certain area? Because I know like I personally, not like I've been working out recently as I should be, but I should be working out a lot of like my core for to build up all of my abdominals um, because that's really important for bladder health and that whole Mm -hmm. connectivity in that area. Is there anything that you focus on that kind of I probably should have um but I didn't I basically have tried like most different kinds of exercise <laughs> and I don't like any of them to be honest with you but I definitely found you know building up my core was quite important because I've been cut through in my stomach or my core so many times mm-hmm. and every time they're cutting through your layers of muscle mm-hmm. and it's hard to get that back sometimes so like making sure that I had strength there was important. And it also helped when I had, you know, unexpected surgeries with the recovery because I had those muscles there, but then otherwise a little bit of my back to try and get a bit more support. And I just tried everything, you know, trying to look like a Victoria's Secret model. That was the aim, was it? <laughs> That's what everybody wanted to look like. <laughs> I remember those days. Right? Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I knew exactly which model I wanted to look like too. (laughs) I was in love with Candice. That's who I'm in love with. She was my favorite as well. Absolutely. Hands down forever. Oh my gosh. I wanted her butt so bad. Yeah. And I cannot (laughs) believe that she's going to have two children and still look so good. I know. I had no idea. I found her on Instagram like two years ago and found out she had kids. And I was like, what? How did you maintain that body? That must be so much work. And then I think about how much exercise that is. And then I don't feel like looking like that anymore. Yeah, me too, to be honest (laughs) with you. Too difficult, too painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I prepared a pageant a few years ago and I was exercising so often like I had so many sessions with PTs like I was eating super clean and all of that but afterwards I'd kind of built up my body to be a lot more muscly than it was and him and I were talking about maybe I should go on like a bodybuilding comp but like a fitness like a bikini fitness one not a big one but then he told me I had to start counting like macros and micros and all of that and I was like no way I'm not doing any of that I'm not that committed (laughs) No, it's too much. No, I don't go to the gym. So there you go. And I, I saw on your website that you did you did you win that one that pageant? I came second. I came second. So, yeah. So it was very exciting for me because I'd never done a pageant before. Like I'd done modeling when I was, you know, younger, like from about 2015 to 2016 were my like more full-time years. And then I kind of dropped back a little bit more, but 2019, I yeah auditioned for a pageant, made it to nationals. And then I was like, 
if I'm going to do this, I might as well do it well. So I started exercising and doing all that social media stuff, which I'm not very good at, (laughs) but yeah. And then I came second and it was such an incredible experience because it was a transition from modeling where, you know, you're just seen and you're not heard to actually having a voice because you have to speak, you have to interview, you have to interact. So that was a good transition. But once I came second, I was like, I can never do a pageant again because I'm not going to do that well next time. (laughs) So that's my pageantry career. You one time only and it was a success and now you can hang up that sash. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So another question I wanted to ask was how your parents communicated with you about all of your medical things. Were they pretty open to discussing things with you when you had questions? Like my mom used to ask me if I had any questions that I wanted to ask the doctors and she would make sure to have like a list of her questions and then a list of my questions. Did they ever do anything like that or? (laughs) I don't think we were organized enough to write questions for appointments, but we really should have been. So yeah, we had like like really open communication around what my condition was and I always understood it so I could repeat the doctors you know what was going on with me from such a young age which I think was so so important and it was very open thing in my household like everyone knew about bacterial would get removalists you know to like move from house to house and my dad would be having a conversation like my daughter was born with two vaginas and I'm there like seven like hands over my ears being like stop you know you can't say that but yeah it's pretty funny yeah that is pretty funny he's just proud of you yeah so what do you still deal with today like I assume you're on plenty of medications. I know you're on the one for your heart. Kind of talked about working out and how maybe we should be. Do you like do any specific dietary restrictions or anything like that to help? No, not really. So I had um, quite a large surgery in 2020 that didn't go right. And I lost quite a lot of weight. So I went from... Like I'm quite tall and I went from 63 kilos like a few months before surgery because I was getting sicker and I was down to 60 when I had the operation, which isn't that bad. Like it's kind of in the just underweight range. But yeah, then I wasn't able to eat or drink for 10 days. They had wrapped my stomach around the bottom of my esophagus and I lost six kilos in 10 days. And then it was really hard to gain that back. So I gained back a bit after surgery, but then I lost it all again. So I've been basically in a fight back and forth because, you know, if you're looking at my BMI, my BMI is actually very low, but yeah, I had an NG tube for a while and I was having 1,300 calories pumped into me as I was sleeping and then waking up. And you have, do you have KFC in America? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'd be like getting KFC meals and like getting <laughs> so many, you know, like fattening things and just shoving them all in my mouth at once. Like I was eating so much and I could not gain anything. And it was so frustrating, but I've managed to gain like just a few kilos now, but I'm still lower than I was when I got out of hospital, which is a shame. So in terms of diet, I eat 
everything. If it's more fattening, perfect, um, which will change at some point, obviously. And I take, yeah, a few medications, but mainly it's just going back and forth to the hospital all the time, seeing so many specialists and having all these little fires pop up, you know, like my fire was this weight loss and problems with digesting and problems with my bowel. And they were trying to get me to go and have an ileostomy, like a colostomy for your small bowel. And yeah, I said no. So we just kind of have been around in all these circles and relatively the same now, but just not, not as well as I was a few years ago. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. That's what the um, surgery was for was the colostomy that you decided not to do or. So the surgery was called a fungiplication. So as to prevent reflux. Oh, okay around the bottom of your esophagus so the reflux can't come up so that's what the surgery was for and that was in 2020 but then as I started to decline and lose weight like my bowels just completely stopped working like everything started shutting down and they said that you know you need to get an ileostomy like your large colon does not work that's the only solution that we have for you and I just refused to be honest like there's no better way to put it so I'd just go to these appointments and tell me that's my only option. And I'd say no. And they'll be like, okay, we'll see you next time to talk about it again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it's inevitable. It will probably happen at some stage, but I'd like to go as long as I possibly can without, without that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a shame there isn't more that they can do or that there hasn't been like enough studies into figuring out what, else can be done in situations like this it was like six months ago I genuinely thought that I was going to die like I didn't think that I was going to make it to this year like it was a dire situation like I was rake thin I got down to about 47 kilos which is such a dangerous BMI for someone of my height and yeah and like my bowels weren't working I was in and out of hospital I had no energy I literally remember I called the psychologist that I see at the pain center and I hadn't seen her in quite a while. And I just said, like, I need to come in. And I sat there with her and I said, you know what, this is all that's happened. And I think that I'm going to die. And she just said to me, she was like, well, you know, it's, you're not exaggerating. You're not catastrophizing. Like that's actually how it seems at the moment. And it's really scary. And so she basically talked to me about like, what could I do with my life to have it, to make it more fulfilling? Because I always work like 24 seven. And so she said, you know, maybe you shouldn't work as much. Maybe you should try and, you know, socialize more and do things that bring you joy. And yeah, so it was, it was difficult for a few months. while I was trying to process what's going to happen. Like, do I have a future? And I think that's something I did very internally but it was very scary. So I'm just grateful to be like a bit better now. And I don't feel like I'm going to die anytime soon, but it was scary for a little while for me. Yeah. Wow. I got goosebumps. My eyes got all watery. So I just feel for you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. I think that like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but for me, like it's, you know, they throw things at you left, right, and center. So many extreme things are said to you. Like I've been told in the past five years that there are so many things that could limit my life or that I could suddenly die from or this or that. And then I've been left to process it. 
And if I bring it up again with the doctor, they're like, oh, well, that's dramatic, isn't it? I didn't say it like that. Or they didn't mean it like that or this or that because I see so many specialists, they never talk to each other. So, yeah, it's very invalidating but very weird, you know, constantly facing your mortality. Um, yeah. But such is life. Yeah. For people like us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. But was the reflex fixed? Not really, no. No? Oh, no. I was going to say, hopefully there's a bright side to the surgery. Yeah. They they wrapped it so tight that no reflux could come up, but no food or water could go down. So it was fixed, sort of, but even all of my saliva was pulling in my esophagus, so I couldn't lie down and was constantly drowning and aspirating into my lungs. Oh, my gosh. So then they had to undo it. And when they undid it, you know, the I, back. Back, but it was still like it was tight and there was something that wasn't fully undone or something wrong. So I had to have, you know, dilatations. I had to have multiple rounds of Botox. Yeah. All from this surgery that I never should have had. And wow. yeah, again, I don't know if you feel like this either, but I feel like I've been such an expert on my own body that when I have a bit of an intuitive thing to say no, and I don't say no, that I'm really angry at myself when it goes wrong. Cause I've had millions of surgeries, never worry for a second, but the night before that surgery, I could not sleep at all. And I was going to make like a vlog of, you know, my experience. So I've got all these videos and in the video the night before, like I literally am like, you know, holding up a selfie camera and I was like, I am really worried that, you know, they could wrap this too tight and I wouldn't be able to swallow all this or that. And that's exactly what happened. I knew it and I should have trusted <laughs> myself, but it was very scary because in those 10 days they were like, we don't know if we can ever get you back to a stage where you'll eat or drink again. I was like, oh, oh great. great. Thank you. <laughs> so like refreshing. That's reassuring. Thank you. pretty traumatizing to be honest wow yeah it's yeah it's a no wonder you don't really like doctors and (laughs) going to the hospital and like the good ones like there are so many that I like and I've had really great experiences but it's just some have been really bad experiences and then how they've been handled afterwards hasn't been positive either Um, so I think that's why the work that I do now is so much about how can we work together to use our lived experience to start to influence how the health system operates, to try and teach doctors, to try and engage like in a, in a good way, like with good intentions, you know, I don't want to go to someone and be like, well, you ruined my life and all of this horrible thing, all these horrible things have happened, but go in there with like a really constructive mindset on how you can work together to make it better. And I think a lot of the work that I do now, because I do work with not-for-profits and hospitals and speaking and all of that. And in speaking, I talk more about my bad experiences, but a lot of the other things, they would have no idea that certain things have happened to me because I think that sometimes there's a perception if you get someone that's angry at the system or that's had a poor experience, they're not the people that you want engaging with you to try and make it better. But so you just have to be careful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are the people that they should be hearing from. That's people they need to hear from most. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, you know, creating more opportunities where people can just hear, you know, what your story is, what my story is, what our priorities are, you know, what could have made our lives better. 
because there are still going to be kids born with our conditions, mm-hmm. maybe not every day, maybe every day somewhere <laughs> in the world, but yeah. And there needs to be something better for them. Absolutely. Yeah. You ever need someone to help out on anything on the West coast, the U S let me know. And <laughs> you. Yeah. I'll get you. Yeah. I think it's just so important that there are so many different lived experiences and we can all work together and that there are power in numbers. And I think that, you know, as people with rare diseases, it's so fragmented. If we all come together, there's something like a few hundred million of us in the world. But when we're all separated, there isn't. So finding ways that we can come together as communities, whether it's the rare disease or disability or chronic illness community, despite our differences to actually work towards something really positive. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit because we've talked a lot about all of your medical stuff, but you've done so much with your life too. I mean, we talked about you being in the pageant. And I, you kind of mentioned your book and you have your own health agency now, and you mentioned you modeled a little bit. I wanted to ask a few things. First, how did you break into the modeling world and what kind of pushback you got? Because I know like myself, you've got scars and that's not an easy thing to have in the modeling world. And there's going to be a lot of pushback. And I'm wondering if that just made you want to work harder towards it. Yeah, I think I'm probably one of those people that someone says no and I'm like, well, (laughs) (laughs) that's basically what happened. So when I was 15, my mom was like, you are not ladylike. You don't, you know, cross your legs enough. You don't do this. You don't do that. And I was like, oh, come on. And I got enrolled in this like modeling and deportment course. And of course, I think, well, I think that a lot of, you know, young girls think I want to be a model someday. And, or maybe it was just me, but it was definitely me that I thought, oh, you know, that's something cool. I'd love to do that. And I'd be the like little kid that would dress up and, you know, try and put on like that awful makeup that would be like $2 from the store with glitter and all of that. So that's what I was like, but doing this course, it showed me how modeling works as an industry and as a profession and all the things involved. And I could see it was quite challenging, but I liked the challenge. So I decided that, you know, it is something that I wanted to do. And I submitted to a few agencies and I didn't hear anything back, but I then was in contact with the agency that ran the modeling course and they invited me to come in and talk about having a contract. So that was really exciting for me. And I went in and everything was looking good. And then just at the end, they said, oh, do you have any scars? And I was like, yeah, I do. And they're like, would like to see them. So I lifted up my shirt again and they saw them and they basically said, you know, you'll never be able to model and show your stomach like ever. So that's going to really limit, you know, what you're able to do because even castings to, you know, jobs that you're going to be wearing clothes for, you go in a bikini and this and that and basically made it look like, you know, we want to represent you. We want to do things with you, but you're just never going to be able to show your stomach and we'll never show you, like, we'll never send you to anything where you can show your stomach. So I just like, I did that little, you know, photo shoot again and all of that. But then I basically just dropped out of contact because I was thought, I thought that was ridiculous. You know, I don't want to be a model to not show my scars. I actually want to be a model to show my scars. Like that's kind of the point for me. And I just started 
working as hard as you can when you're working towards something that someone else controls because they decide, you know, if you're the right look or whatever. But I ended up casting for a boutique modeling agency in Brisbane, just out of coincidence, you know, about a year afterwards, because I'd gotten into like fashion and, and like making clothes. So I had all of these photos of me in the clothes, brought them as like a little portfolio to this new agency and they signed me was so exciting so I just didn't say anything about my scars like I knew I had to walk in a bikini I put a little bit of concealer over them which is a bit naughty because I was like I'm gonna break in and I got in and they were lovely and I just started working hard I started saying yes to every single opportunity that I was given and within like I was on a development three-month contract and within the first month I was offered a full 12-month contract that was very exciting. And then I cast for these, you know, bigger runways in Queensland in my bikini and I got in and I was like, hang on a second, this is pretty cool. And then I started, yeah, getting some traction and I went over to Amsterdam for a holiday and I arranged to meet with an agency over there while I was there. And I ended up getting signed and basically cancelling my return ticket home and staying there for the next two months to pursue my dreams. So I was 17 in Amsterdam, no health insurance, staying with this random 20-year-old guy that I'd never met before that I just moved in with just I guess trying to live out my dream and I'd be catching so much public transport every day to go to all these different castings and things and I did a few fashion shows and I did Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week in Amsterdam the day before my 18th birthday which was huge because it was something that I'd had as a goal like when I was kind of starting out in modeling but it was hilarious this girl with her scars from a little agency in Brisbane she's never going to get to Fashion Week let alone Fashion Week overseas and I did it but I worked really, really hard and I did face barriers and they weren't just barriers because of my scars. You know, sometimes you're just not the right look or they measure you and you're too big. And so I'd have my measurements written down with arrows to what my measurements should be if I can lose some weight (laughs) and all of that. So it was an intense environment. And I think that the modeling agency or modeling industry is saying that it's more accepting now, which I hope it is, but it was saying that it was getting more accepting then and it was still incredibly damaging to a lot of people. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible that you managed to break through and really make it happen for yourself like that. Yeah. I I'm really proud of myself. Like, and for me, I think modeling was that to serve a purpose. And now I'm signed with a new agency that's a disability modeling agency. And I'm really excited for what happens there because I feel like genuinely this aligns with me and who I am and my vision. But at that stage in my life, modeling was there to serve a purpose that had actually served really, really well. I wanted to be able to be a representation or ambassador for other people with factual, other people that had scars or invisible disabilities. And so in my head, I only had to get to my goal of Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week and then I could throw up the, like hang up the towel because I did what I needed to do. And after I did it, I started, you know, sharing my story a little bit. It actually took a year after or two years after Fashion Week, one and a half anyway, for me to start sharing my story because I didn't realize that it had as much power as it did. And I didn't really feel that disabled at that point because I had managed to stay overseas for two months by myself. Like I actually did pass out multiple times, like blackout and they had to get me up and everything. So it wasn't all oh easy, gosh. but <laughs> yeah, I know it wasn't great, but I felt like, you know, I needed to do that. Once I'd done that, I'd been the example and representation 
but I wasn't necessarily feeling like I'd experienced too many severe health issues in that last year because I was able to go off and do modeling. But 2017, I had three abdominal surgeries in eight months. And after that, I was like, I've I've got some experience to talk about. So I actually posted on one of those online Facebook groups, you know, a photo of me in hospital and a photo of me at fashion week a year apart was like, anything's possible. And I just had such an overwhelming response. And that's when I knew I have to do advocacy. I have to share my story. I have to write my book. And it's really was the domino effect. And even though modeling wasn't that crucial to me and didn't make such a huge difference in my life. I think being able to tell other people whose kids are, you know, in the neonatal intensive care that like, Hey, this girl has the same condition. Look, she's just modeled. She's done this. She's done that. It has so much value to them. And I think that's what has been really important about how my journey's kind of progressed from modeling now to advocacy and business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. I've had a handful of bladder extrophy moms, like reach out to me on social media And just, they just want to know about everyday life and like, just know that I've been able to live a life essentially so that they know that their kids are going to be okay. And I think being able to say like, yeah, I did all of the normal kids school things. I went to college, like I've had jobs, like I have a stable relationship. Like I've been able to build a life for myself. Like your kids are going to be fine. Yeah, I I just think it's so important. And that was, again, one of the reasons why I'm doing everything that I'm doing now, because my mom was one of those moms and my dad was one of those dads that was so terrified of their child's future. Like, not only are they going to survive, but are they going to thrive? You know, are they going to be able to have a normal life? Will anyone love them and be in a relationship with them? You know, will they be able to be okay, I think. And that was what was so important to me because there was no one that I could look to when I was growing up. Um, no one that they could look to when I was growing up to say, it's going to be okay. And I know that if, if they'd been able to see me now, even though I've got quite a few issues, they would have just been so relieved to know that it's still possible to be happy as well. Yes. Um, Cause I think that's what it comes down to. Like it comes down to, you know, you have all this medical stuff, but are you happy? Like, with your life and who you are. Absolutely. To an extent. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'd love to be in this big mansion and this and that, but life's good. (laughs) I think there's always going to be something that we're always wanting, but (laughs) what is your book called again? Behind the Smile. um, The subtitle yeah, is an inspirational journey from disability to ability because I was trying to express that, you know, a disability isn't a disability. Like you still have a lot of abilities. Like how can you use a positive mindset to actually transform adversity into your strengths? Um, And I like the behind smile because, you know, I was always that happy person that was out there smiling and you would have no idea that there were any, you know, medical problems behind that or any challenges in my life behind that because I think, that even though I've got a lot of medical crap and you probably do too, that there's still other stuff in life. You know, you can still have a crappy fight with your like partner or you can still have family issues or you can still have, you know, you want to get a job or you don't have enough money or all those typical struggles as well. And I think adversity comes down to adversity. Like it's quite similar. If you can get your way out of, you know, being in a state of adversity with your health, then I think you're well equipped to get yourself out of other, you know, adverse situations. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So for anyone listening that wants to check it out, I will link the book in the show notes for everyone as well. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add or talk about at all? Because I think that's kind of it for my questions. Yeah, I think maybe just briefly, like how I actually got to, you know, Champion Health Agency, because that's really what I'm doing now. And what happened was, like I said, you know, I realized my story had so much value and I started speaking, like I spoke in America and Australia and Pakistan twice, which was a really interesting experience and came back to Australia and started working with, you know, not-for-profits doing, you know, advisory work, ambassador stuff, media interviews. And then it progressed to actually working with health services where I could sit on different boards or committees and actually influence what happens for all those like tens of thousands of people coming through outpatients every month. And I saw that, you know, lived experience has so much power and it's so diverse. Like you can be like, you can spread your lived experience through modeling, a bit difficult, but you could, you can spread it as a speaker, as like working with all these different organizations. And I saw that like, there was no one pulling that together, that that's actually what I wanted to do for my career because this disability isn't going away and I'm going to have to, you know, face challenges for the rest of my life. So I wanted to have something that would be really meaningful to me. It would be meaningful to other people and it would allow me the flexibility to do you know, work when I could do it. And it would allow all those people that are technically classed as, you know, unemployed and that they're not able to get employment, they would actually be able to have opportunities to do things. Like imagine if you can do a role as a speaker and you can get paid enough for your weekly rent or a few weeks rent. And that's it. And it brings so much value to the audience. Like I thought that was so important and so powerful. So all of that experience and the need for someone to actually manage me and what I do made me, you know, start Champion Health Agency to actually, you know, represent other people with chronic illness and disabilities and carers to actually professionalize that lived experience and access, you know, all those opportunities that I have, but also so many more because then it would give them, you know, a lot of freedom financially, but also it would give them a lot of meaning behind, you know, all these awful experiences that they've had and positive experiences too. So that's been basically my full time now and I speak on you know a few panels like what the past few weeks I've probably spoken on six panels been really busy and I've done you know a literature review and published my first research paper which is being peer-reviewed now so I'll be properly published in a journal hopefully soon but it's just been incredibly busy and opened up my eyes to all the different opportunities that you can actually access just because you've had a lived experience of disability or chronic illness or accessing the health system. Wow, that's incredible. We might need to talk sometime again (laughs) outside of the podcast about it. (laughs) Sounds good. Amazing. Well, thank you for coming on. I think you've lived through an incredible amount. You're just so positive about all of it too. It's, It's really neat to see like that personality really shine through. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. I feel like I've become a bit cynical and negative in my old age. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's really important to have that, you know, positive attitude and not toxic positivity because no one likes that apart from us. I, I kind of like it sometimes <laughs> for myself. But yeah, I think it's important to, you know, have a positive view because 
I would never be able to live the life that I'm living now, which is so fulfilling and has impacted so many people's lives if I wasn't born with that condition. And if I hadn't gone through all of that awful trauma and procedures and this and that, that it's all actually happened for a reason as much as people kill me for saying that. I feel like it has. And I'm really happy that I was born with factual, to be honest, so I could understand this better. Yeah. I, my mom and I talk about that all the time too, that even though we didn't necessarily like that, I had to put up with, you know, surgeries and doctor's appointments that both of us are, are happy that I was born with bladder atrophy as well. Yeah. And I think that's people like, why would you be happy that you're born with, you know, a condition that makes you have to go to hospital all the time, but it's true. Like you would have skills that no one else would have. I have skills that no one else would have. And we've built that, you know, through our experiences and for all the people listening, I'm sure that they have as well. And yeah, I think it's for a reason. We're going to do great things. You're already doing great things. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you for coming on the show again. Okay, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Body Talk with Bex. I hope you found it as enjoyable as I did. And she had some really crazy stories to share with us that just left me with goosebumps. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts at. Also consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. We just rolled out some great stickers for patrons, which are also available on the website if you just want to purchase a sticker. If you would like to share your story or know someone who would like to, I can be contacted through my website, www.bodytalkwithbex.com or on social media. Thanks for listening.